it's just that classic like you don't look autistic and because I guess people have like still this perception of autism that it's like you know little white boys um like lining up trains and stuff and I think um I guess just that idea you know like masking like some autistic people are very good at like pretending they're not autistic and like fitting in and stuff but that comes at a cost um and I think for me like I think the more you get to know me, the more autistic I probably do look. Mm. But um, yeah, I guess, so I guess I guess it's just that misconception about like the variety of what a spectrum actually is, and that everyone is individual, and what you've seen in the media isn't necessarily an accurate portrayal of what um, autism looks like. It was just that having that label meant that the school was more willing to to make those changes like we right. like we were asking for the same things probably as we'd been asking for before we got it's the diagnosis but when you but when you've got the got the label then they're like oh okay we yes we can do that whereas um or we can't do exactly that but we can try this whereas before then i did, like i've read my diagnosis report or like the letter that my the pediatrician wrote to the school and it has, there's a sentence in there about, you know, in my professional judgment, I don't believe Rachel is primarily manipulative. Like, so I guess there was maybe this perception, yeah, I was a bit shocked when I read that as well. That was, uh, yeah, I guess I, there was maybe this perception at the school that I was just misbehaving or that yeah. I was, or that I was manipulating my parents or that I was being naughty for the purpose of being naughty or that I just needed better discipline or whatever. Um, and so I think having having a doctor say no, like, I mean, I don't know why anyone would ever think any child is just manipulative. Like, like of course, no one would do that. Like, kids aren't evil little creatures. Like, if they're the the behaviour is telling you something about what they need. But I, apparently, if that word is in the diagnosis report, then there was that perception. So I think I think just the label helped to get like the changes in the environment that I needed to do well. Mm. Um, yeah, and then I think I think you know as I've got older, and obviously I've still like continued to struggle with anxiety and also depression, um, but it's been helpful to have that label to to be able to understand what works for mental health in autistic people as opposed to in neurotypical people because it does come back to that thing of like you know maybe cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work as well like I think there's some research that shows that it's not as effective in autistic people as it is in neurotypical people and like that's always been my experience sorry I yes, might have just no, bumped no. the microphone um, um, that's always been my experience that people have been like you know in CBT it's like well let's reframe those thoughts like that bad thing's not going to happen and I'm like I know that it's not going to happen like I know that the thought is not reasonable I still feel anxious so this is not helping. And I also remember, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell everyone because then no one can be mean to me anymore. And mum was like, no, you're at school with 11 year old girls. Like they probably will still be a bit mean to you. So maybe just don't. Um, so we didn't end up telling any of my classmates. I didn't really have anyone close enough that I was close enough to that I would want to tell that. But um, mm. it was, 
it was good to get some books, although then again, there was kind of that thing where it was 2006, so all the books yeah. were about boys. Like I had this, I had this book called Freaks, Geeks and Asperger's Syndrome by Luke Jackson, which was published in 2002 and he was 13 when he wrote it and he's from England. So it was like, well, this should be a really cool book because it's like written by someone who's about the same age as you, but because he was like a 13 year old boy in England and I was a 12 year old girl in New Zealand, like I couldn't really see myself in it and so, even after we got that diagnosis, like I spent a lot of time like reading over diagnostic criteria and reading books and still being like, I don't see myself in here. And so it took, I guess it took most of my teenage years to like come to feel comfortable that it was a label that I could actually use. And particularly it was once they started coming out books that were written by women about their experiences of being autistic, that I was like, oh wait, that's me. Like I remember, um, so a book that came out in 2015 um, called Six Sisterhood of the Spectrum by Jennifer Cook O'Toole. So that was like, when I was like, oh my gosh, like this is me in a book. Um, and obviously that was like, nine years after I got the diagnosis so my mum said that like the teacher said that in one of my one of my parent teacher interviews she was like yeah my only concern is that she's still very into imaginative play and my mum was like why is that a problem like she can always entertain herself so I guess I um still had a lot of interests that um yeah, that just meant that I didn't have a lot in common with right. girls that were the same age as me. And I think also because my sister is two years younger than me, so I did rely on her quite a lot for like social um, support. I mean, my so I went to three primary schools because I started primary school. We were living in Adelaide in Australia, so I started primary school there. Sorry, you were born here? Or? I was born in New Zealand and then um, my dad's a doctor and as part of his like specialist training, he, right. we went to Adelaide for him to finish that off. So I started school there um, and I just ended up in a classroom that was like <laughs> perfect classroom like the teacher the teacher gave us all an individual spot on the mat to sit in like we sat in like perfectly straight lines on the mat like it was just very like routine and regulated and it worked quite well and also um the way the school system worked there you started like they had a cohort of people start at the start of a term so I turned five towards the end of term one so I started at the beginning of term two so I started with like a whole group of friends that I'd known at kindy and stuff so I think things were things were okay then um, and then we moved to New Zealand and my first sorry my first um, primary school here um, it had like mixed classes so like I was originally in a year three four class when I was in year three and then I was in a year three four class when I was in year four um, and that was the best year because I was then able to make friends with a lot of the year threes whereas when I'd been in the year the same age as you yeah were. so I was like when I was in year four all my friends were in year three um, so they were a year younger than me but they were in the same class so it was fine so it was just that kind of thing of finding it easier to relate to kids that were a bit younger um, and then I when I was in year five I moved into a year four five class but I didn't have any of my friends in it and so then again that was really hard um, and then we moved to my 
school that I did year six and then all the way through till year 13. And at that school, the classes were just one year level, so just year six. Um, but my sister was there and she's two years younger than me. Um, so I sort of, she made friends and then I just tagged along. <laughs> um, which, so, is, which is a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, it was good for me. I'm not sure it was probably a bit hard for her sometimes. Like I had this thing, since I was about nine called my round where every night I had to go around, I had to like check the computer is off, I had to check the heater is off, I had to check the back door is locked, I had to check all the light switches are off um, because I just had anxiety that like the house was going to burn down or someone was going to break in and murder us or whatever. But then it became into this whole like ritual of like then I have to flick the light switch on three times and look at the moon and touch the window and I had like 35 or something stuffed animals that I would count into my bed with me each night in a specific order like there were groups it was like there's a group of five and they go in in this order and then there's a group of two and then there's a group of one and then there's a group of 13 um so it just it just I guess just as I grew up it became like there was the relating to people younger than you thing but then there was also like a lot of anxiety and a lot of routines and rituals to cope with that mm. anxiety. I was at a meeting for some work for the Ministry of Education the other day and we were trying to come up with a sentence that like talked about all these different elements and people were throwing all these like saying like well it's important that we mention this and this and this and I was able to like synthesize that into a sentence which really worked so I think yeah just that and I've always been like at meetings like when you need a person to like be the scribe and like take notes of like the key points I've always been very good at just like summarizing into the key points like I've had people say wow you're so good at that so yeah because I think I kind of knew that you were supposed to play with your Barbies, but what I wanted to do was tidy the Barbie house. So I was like, well, we're playing with them by by doing like Barbie house cleanup. Um, but yeah, so I guess that's the equivalent of like, you know, people always say, well, like little autistic boys, like line up their toys or whatever. And I was lining up my toys. It's just, it looked like it, it looked like tidying the doll's house, but I wasn't that interested in like, playing imaginary scenarios with the dolls. Or even if I was like playing like wizard school or whatever, for me, the fun part of that was getting all the old books out and like all the books that looked like they might belong in a magic library and like pretending to write essays about magic or whatever. It wasn't, it was never the like interaction with other kids. If I feel like I'm gonna have a meltdown, I can do things to delay it so that I get home, but it's gonna happen. Right. Like, like for me, you cannot stop a meltdown from happening. Like you can, you know, I know that like I can let, you know, if I jog around the netball court 10 times or whatever, I'll, I'll be okay for a while, but it's gonna happen when I get home. Um, but it's just being able to like, have enough control that you can wait to get home mm. till that happens. Um, yeah. So if you're having a meltdown, what do you usually do? I learned from, uh, I forgot the training, Autism 101 somewhere. Yeah. Uh, for a child, if the child is having a meltdown, you can't do anything about yeah. it. You, you just have to wait for the child to stop. Mm. Is that the same when yeah. you're an adult? Yeah, I kind of just have to wait for it to stop. Um, for me, it will 
So like, as I said, I can sometimes feel it coming and I can like, if I do something really physical, then that can release, because it's like pent up energy. So you can release a bit of the energy that way, but it probably will eventually happen. So altogether autism is part of your way kiaroha. Right. So no, so your way kiaroha does lots of different things. Um, they also have like, we, I guess, also have like mobility centers where you can purchase and hire mobility equipment and um, hearing therapy and stuff and the NASC um, service. But then altogether autism is part, it's like, under your wake aroha, um, under that umbrella, um, and kind of uh, the learning and information side of your wake aroha. Um, so, so your wake aroha does training about you know disability in general, but then also has this altogether autism specific, autism specific, and actually altogether autism is also run in partnership with parent to parent as well so the research team is parent to parents research team so it's kind of like it's kind of like so so your way kiaroha evolved from when life unlimited and accessibility came together merged um and so it used to be altogether autism started as a partnership between life unlimited and parent to parent to provide this autism information service So welcome to the podcast, and maybe just to start off, um, who is Rachel uh, with Char? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, whew, that's a big question. Who am I? <laughs> I I mean, I, I guess I'm here because I'm autistic, um, so there's that. And I work at All Together Autism. Outside of that, I am a dancer. So did um, a degree in commercial dance at Te Awaha in Wellington. Right, right. Um, I now dance at events around Wellington with Society Event Entertainment, um, including cheerleading for the Saints basketball team, which is really fun. I have always been very interested in education, so I do lots of tutoring, well, less now, but I have done lots of tutoring with um, high school students, particularly interested in working with neurodivergent students. Um, and so I've got to be involved in some kind of work with the Ministry of Education a little bit as well. Um, and then outside of that, I do one day a week of visitor services hosting at Te Papa. Um, and I also do another day a week visitor services hosting at Capital E, which is like a little, um, under five's play space in Wellington. Right. You're doing all of that, managing your time. How can you manage it? <laughs> well, I, um, it's important to me to keep busy um, from like a mental health perspective. Um, but also it's like, I need to have a variety of things happening. I, I can't do, I find it, I would find it really, I think impossible to do like, have like one job that was 40 hours a week. Like I think I just wouldn't cope with that. Like it's easier for me to have a variety of different things. So I'm interacting with different people. I'm not like 
spending 40 hours a week with the same people all the time. Um, and also I've got just so many different interests that it's like important to me to feed those interests and things. Because the thing, the thing that actually the other thing that I'm doing that I forgot to mention is mm. that um, I'm doing the Master of Trans, uh, inter Intercultural Communication and Applied Translation at Victoria right. University as well. Um, so yeah. Um, I'm also doing a little bit of study uni work, but yeah, it's it's just mm. having having that variety and mm. and and being able to make sure I'm doing all the things that I'm interested in and having a mixture like the dancing is obviously like physical activity, which mm. is really important. Um, and then like the uni for like thinking and you know engaging with ideas is mm. also important. So yeah, it's kind of like balancing your the way you think and then the movement as yeah, well, physical, yeah, right? Yeah. Right, um, you mentioned about the interest, we'll talk about that interest later. Mm. Uh, your autism story. Yeah. Tell me about it. When you found out about your autism at 12, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was diagnosed when I was 12. Um, so that was when I was in year seven at school. Mm. Um, and I was at a school that um, you moved from the primary school to the like secondary school part of the school at year seven. So that was a really big transition. You know, you're going from having like one, um, one class teacher for the whole day to like moving around to different teachers for each different subject. And um, also I'd always like been friends with people who were younger than myself or kind of like borrowed my younger sister's friends. So, um, and so suddenly I was at like an entirely different part of the school from them, like our lunch times weren't at the same time. So I, I lost that as well. Um, so it was, it was awful. It was like meltdowns every morning. Like I used to like take all my clothes off in the car mm. and my parents would have to drag me into school kicking and screaming. And um, so I think at that point they, um, I mean, I'm very lucky in that both my parents work in the health system, so they knew what to ask for and how to ask for it. So I think we actually got seen quite quickly and like went specifically for an autism diagnosis yeah. rather than just being like, these are the problems she has. Like I think my parents had kind of figured it out and we're just like, can we get the paperwork so that the school will listen to what she needs. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't, that hadn't come entirely out of the blue. Like I'd been seeing a child psychologist since I was like seven and been being treated for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, but obviously this was back, um, so it was 2006 when I was diagnosed. So like, it was still like, girls don't have autism, like she's just quirky or she just has an anxiety disorder or whatever. So, um, and I think I think even the pediatrician who did my diagnosis was like, she doesn't fully meet the criteria, but we know that it's like, looks different in girls. So I'm, I'm happy to use like my clinical judgment to say, yes, this is the diagnosis that fits. Um, but yeah, like I'd, I'd already like, even before we got the diagnosis, like we knew I did better with, um, kids that were younger than me, I um, had actually repeated year six. So I did two years in year six, um, even though we didn't have the diagnosis at that point. We, um, my parents were just like, she does better with kids that are younger than her. Like she's not ready to go to <clears throat> year seven, the next level yet. Let's just like keep her. And because of when my birthday is, um, I 
was at the youngest end of my original year group anyway. So even though I repeated year six, I was actually only two weeks older than the next oldest person in my year group. So it wasn't, it wasn't that big of a jump. And so I think like there'd definitely been some flexibility and some accommodations from the school and like I'd had problems, a lot of problems at school in the past, but until then we had managed either by just asking for something specific mm -hmm. or or I mean we had had to move schools at one point to get what I needed but um but it got in year seven it was just like it reached the point where actually I think the school just saw me as naughty or misbehaving and they needed a diagnosis my parents needed a diagnosis to get the support that mm. they needed um so that's kind of yeah, that's how it that's how it happened from my end. And I think for me, like like I remember um, sitting in the diagnostic appointment and the pediatrician going, "So Rachel, do you know what Asperger's syndrome is?" And I was like, "Oh, is there a kind of autism?" So I kind of kind of knew what it was. Um, and I think for me, it came completely out of the blue. But my parents had been like thinking about it for a while and had probably just like left some reading material around because they knew that anything that they left, I would pick up and read. So uh, they I kind didn't of, specifically they, they didn't specifically say, "Hey, we think." this might be you read this but I I had okay. an awareness so um yeah so that's how it happened and I mean it it was a massive relief at first um because I'd been like I used to I read everything so I used mm. to sneak like my parents parenting books and like read them and try and because I knew I didn't fit in right and I was like trying to and I knew I did better than younger children. So I was like, what, what, like, why is this? Like, what is, like, I was trying to find myself in mm -hmm. those books. And so I remember being very excited that there were books about me that I could read. And I also remember, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to tell everyone because then no one can be mean to me anymore. And mum was mm -hmm. like, no, you're at school with 11 year old girls. Like, they probably will still be a bit mean to you, so maybe just don't. Um, so we didn't end up telling any of my classmates. I didn't really have anyone close enough that I was close enough to that I would want to tell that. But um, mm. it was it was good to get some books, although then again, there was kind of that thing where it was 2006, so all the books yeah. were about boys. Like I had this, I had this book called Freaks, Geeks and Asperger's Syndrome by Luke Jackson, which was published in 2002 and he was 13 when he wrote it and he's from England. So it was like, well, this should be a really cool book because it's like written by someone who's about the same age as you, but because he was like a 13 year old boy in England and I was a 12 year old girl in New Zealand, like I couldn't really see myself in it and so, even after we got that diagnosis, like I spent a lot of time like reading over diagnostic criteria and reading books and still being like, I don't see myself in here. And so it took, I guess it took most of my teenage years to like come to feel comfortable that it was a label that I could actually use. And particularly it was once they started coming out books mm. that were written by women about their experiences right. of being autistic, mm. that I was like, oh wait, that's me. Like I remember, um, so a book that came out in 2015 mm. um, called Six Sisterhood of the Spectrum by Jennifer Cook O'Toole. So that was like, when I was like, oh my gosh, like this is me mm. in a book. Um, and obviously that was like, nine years after I got the diagnosis, so, yeah. Yeah, tell me about the, the time before the diagnosis. What are you feeling? How are you 
feeling that time uh, left your parents to push uh, to 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 bring you to the mm. the doctor for mm. the diagnosis. So tell me the time before that. How were you feeling? And um, I mean, like, so it definitely it definitely was this thing of very much knowing that I did not fit in with my same age peers. When you say you did not fit in, what do you um, mean? I just was not interested in the same things. I didn't get, like, I still wanted to play imaginary games. Right. I, like, wanted to play olden days or, like, magic school or whatever. And they were getting into, like, reading magazines or, or um, you know, not so much of that imaginative play anymore. In fact, my mum said that, like, the teacher that said that in one of my one of my parent-teacher interviews, she was like, yeah, my only concern is that she's still very into imaginative play. And my mum was like, why is that a problem? Like, she can always entertain herself. Mm. So I guess I um, still had a lot of interests that... Um, yeah, that just meant that I didn't have a lot in common with right. girls that were the same age as me. And I think also because my sister is two years younger than me, so I did rely on her quite a lot for like social um, support. I mean, my so I went to three primary schools because I started primary school. We were living in Adelaide in Australia, so I started primary school there. Sorry, you were born here? Or? I was born in New Zealand, and then um, my dad's a doctor, and as part of his like specialist training, he, right. we went to Adelaide for him to finish that off. So I started school there, um, and I just ended up in a classroom that was like... <laughs> perfect classroom like the teacher the teacher gave us all an individual spot on the mat to sit in like we sat in like perfectly straight lines on the mat like it was just very like routine and regulated and it worked quite well and also um the way the school system worked there you started like they had a cohort of people start at the start of a term so i turned five towards the end of term one so i started at the beginning of term two so i started with like a whole group Mm. of friends that I'd known at kindy and stuff so I think things were things were okay then um, and then we moved to New Zealand and my first sorry my first um, primary school here um, it had like mixed classes mm. so like I was originally in a year three four class when I was in year three and then I was in a year three four class when I was in year four um, okay. and that was the best year because I was then able to make friends with a lot of the year threes whereas when I'd been in the year the same age as you yeah are. so I was like when I was in year four all my friends were in year three mm. um, so they were a year younger than me but they were in the same class so it was fine so it was just that kind of thing of finding it a bit easier to relate to kids that were a bit younger um, and then I when I was in year five I moved into a year four five class but I didn't have any of my friends in it and so mm. then again that was really hard um, and then we moved to my school that I did year six and then all the way through till year mm. 13 and at that school the classes were just one year level so just year six um but my sister was there and she's two years younger than me um so I sort of she made friends and then I just tagged along mm -hmm. um which, so, is a, which is a good thing right yeah 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 but um I mean it was good for me I'm not sure it was probably a bit hard for her sometimes so it was I guess that was that was the thing that like and then just the really 
finding change really difficult. So it was that, I mean, the trigger for getting the diagnosis was not coping with the change from primary to secondary school. Mm-hmm. But um, that wasn't, um, I think my parents already knew that I had a lot of anxiety about change. Like I'd started seeing a psychologist for anxiety when I was seven, which was just after we'd moved back to New Zealand from mm-hmm. Australia. So not coping with that change. And then I just had a lot of like, like I had this thing since I was about nine called my round where every night I had to go around, I had to like check the computer is off, I had to check the heater is off, I had to check the back door is locked, I had to check all the light switches are off um, because I just had anxiety that like the house was going to burn down or someone was going to break in and murder us or whatever. But then it became into this whole like ritual of like, then I have to flick the light switch on three times and look at the moon and touch the window. And I had like, 35 or something stuffed animals that I would count into my bed with me each night in a specific order like there were groups it was like there's a group of five and they go in in this order and then there's a group of two and then there's a group of one and then there's a group of 13. Um, So it just it just I guess just as I grew up it became like there was the relating to people younger than you think but then there was also like a lot of anxiety and a lot of routines and rituals to cope with that Mm. anxiety um yeah i'm not sure if that even answers the question but (laughs) no it does it does i mean i'm just listening and processing all yeah yeah yeah. and i kind of like relate to that in a way Mm. i I mean though my son my my son is just six for Mm. now at the moment but some of the things that he's doing is kind of like the same pattern, like mm. doing the same thing, like on, off, on, off, yeah. on, off, or, yeah. or sometimes playing the same key. In, he's got this keyboard now mm. and he's playing this key, like same key, ding, mm. ding, ding, ding. Mm. All right. So, yeah. so yeah. I kind of like relate, I'm trying to relate it to yeah. my experience as well. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so it's not odd, but it's like, it's not the typical thing that yeah. I will be doing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And it's, I mean, it was even just things like I, um, used to love when we'd go to like a family friend's house and they'd have a doll's house. I'd love like arranging the doll's house furniture. Um, So I really wanted a doll's house for Christmas, but then I got it and I never played with it because all I enjoyed doing was arranging the furniture. And if I didn't play with it, the furniture didn't get messed up. So there was no need to, so I like arranged the furniture once and then that was it, which, um, or like like I had a Barbie house and that one did get a bit messy because it lived in the bottom of my wardrobe. And so I used to really enjoy tidying that. And then I remember like one day my mum came in and was like, oh, Rachel, what are you doing? I was like, I'm playing Barbie cleanup show. Mm. So I was pretending it was like, <laughs> like, <laughs> 20 years before Marie Kondo came along I was doing like a reality series where the Barbies were cleaning up their house because because I think I kind of knew that you were supposed to play with your Barbies but what I wanted to do was tidy the Barbie house so I was like well we're playing with them by by doing like Barbie house cleanup Mm. um but yeah so I guess that's the equivalent of like you know people always say or like little autistic boys like line up their toys or whatever and I was lining up my toys it's just it looked like it it looked like tidying the doll's house, but I wasn't that interested in like playing imaginary scenarios with the dolls. Or even if I was like playing like wizard school or whatever, for me, the fun part of that was getting all the old books out and like all the books that looked like they might belong in a magic library and like 
pretending to write essays about magic or whatever. It wasn't, it was never the like interaction with other kids. It was, yeah, it was the like getting the books and organizing the books and, and a, like drawing up a timetable for your day at wizard school or whatever. Yeah, so like it was imaginary play, but it was different to what like my sister and her friends were doing or like even, you know, sometimes when we play olden days with my sister, we'd do it where I'd be like, right, I am going away to study in a different city. And then the game would just be us writing letters. Like I'd just be downstairs writing a letter like today I saw a horse or whatever. Um, and that was and then my sister and her friend would be like upstairs, like actually playing with each other. But that was what I enjoyed doing like so. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just like, it was imaginary play, but it was definitely different. Mm. During the time you were diagnosed, how's the family, like your mom, what strat what uh, strategies do you remember that she has done, or maybe your sibling when she found found out that you're autistic? How many siblings yeah. do you have? I just have the one oh. younger sister, she's two years younger than me. Yeah. Um, we were kind of in basically, a crisis point like because I was having a meltdown every morning before school um and so that was obviously very traumatic for my sister um it was very hard for my parents it was very hard for me because I felt really guilty about it like I would get to school and then spend the whole day worrying like oh my god what if like dad dies today and the last thing I said to him was that I hate him but I couldn't control it so like it was awful for everyone um and you know like my mum says she you know there was one day where like my sister lost a tooth and the tooth fairy forgot to come for three days and and when the tooth fairy finally remembered to come she found a note from my sister saying please make my sister happy to be in year seven so it was like um it was really hard for the whole family and I think I mean it was so they did put me we initially saw a private psychiatrist who was like I'm not sure I I don't know the details but I got put on some medication which I think I can't rem I don't think that had any impact at all um but I was I was because the other thing is that I refused to eat at school I felt too sick before I went to school to eat and then I refused to eat anything at school because I was like we've got lockers now and that's different we used to have cubby holes and I'm not going to the locker because it has a key and I don't want to unlock it so I would only eat things that I could carry in my pocket so I'd basically have like tiny teddies for lunch um and so and then I'd get home I'd be starving so I'd have a really big afternoon tea and then barely eat dinner because I'd had afternoon tea two hours ago so um there was I mean I think there was some things like and I couldn't swallow pills so my medication I had to have in the morning like squished crushed up in right. in lemonade and then like a square of chocolate to take the taste away so that was my breakfast was lemonade and a square of chocolate and then so yeah there was just it was just like it was a crisis point um and I think I think the main thing that getting the diagnosis did was it helped the school to understand. So when we got the diagnosis, I can't remember if it was exactly before or after, but we switched to a different child psychiatrist 
psychologist yeah. who I think had more experience with autism and who was really good at taking like a, a problem solving approach. So like, let's identify the things that you're actually finding hard about school and let's, um, and let's say, what would you like and let's compromise and so then she could then go to school with my parents and do some education about autism for my teachers and you know talk about like these are the things that Rachel would like to compromise on um and then and so like for example for the so it must have been term three when I got my diagnosis and I think at least for basically all of term four, I went to school four days a week, not five days a week, because there were quite a few school trips and we were just like, no, a school trip's gonna be too hard at the moment because it's a change of routine. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just keep her at home on those days. Um, let's get her to school on the on the days that, um, that's like a normal routine day. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the days where it's a school trip or whatever, she can, I went to my grandparents' house and I worked on like projects that interested me. So I was still learning, um, but it just without the stress of a mm. school trip. And then like at the end of the school year, we had this whole, cause it was um, an Anglican school, we'd have like carol service and prize giving and um, final assembly and things. And again, we were just like, no, like that's too much for her. Let's just, keep her at home and I did a whole thing. I remember like, like I was really interested in like earthquakes and plate tectonics. So I did like a whole research project on that just for myself. Um, and so, so yeah, it was kind of about, it was kind of about having a bit more of that space and understanding from the teachers. I think it was, again, like, as I said before, it was helpful for me to know that I wasn't alone so even though even though the books that I had to read were maybe not great mm. they did give me some understanding and I think also for my parents um, again like knowing that that was the label that fit probably meant they could then you know find other resources and relate to other people and obviously they would talk to the child psychologist as well so they got the support there um and um and also the doctor put me on a different medication which i think worked better so um so just i I don't know if it was an anxiety, it was, I don't know if it was an anxiety, like the original medication was anxiety and I don't know if this one was anxiety or if it was something else, but it, it, it just seemed to be a better fit, which I think is often the case with anxiety medications or, you know, medications for mental health, you're just trying to find something that fits, so. It's not uh, depression, right? Yeah, not, not, this one was not depression, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but then also like, at this point, you know, it took probably half the year to get to the diagnosis, by which point mm. you've got actually less than half of the year to get through. So it was kind of, it was kind of like, okay, we get to the end of year seven. Um, and then we did, I think we did look at different options for different schools, whether there might be something that was a better fit, but we decided to stay where I was. We, but it meant that we could then go into year eight with a bit more of a plan mm -hmm. um, about like 
And also, when I was in year eight, my sister was now in year seven. Mm. And so I then had that, like I had easier access to people that, um, you know, people to do things with at lunchtime or so and stuff. Um, but like going into year eight, it was things like, at my school there was a year eight camp, which yeah. was in Nelson for a week. And it was just like, okay, we're not gonna do that. She's just gonna come to school mm. that week and spend the week with the year sevens. Mm. Like, cause camp's too hard and there's, you know, she's yeah. not gonna learn, mm. like there's no point basically. Um, she may as well just be at school. Um, and things, same with things like athletic sports day or yeah. swimming sports day, we were just like, let's just focus on being at school, doing the at school activities. activities. Um, and I think I think the other thing that happened, I mean, it, it continued to be hard up until year 10, really. So it was always hard at the beginning of the year. And then I kind of would settle into it. Um, and so year eight and year nine were kind of, were actually quite good. Mm. Um, but then towards the end of year nine, I started getting really anxious again. And so the beginning of year 10 was like as bad as year seven, um, even though nothing ostensibly had changed. You know, at that point we had to go back to the doctors. We got a generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis. We got new medication. I had like four weeks off school. I did four day weeks again for a while. Um, but again, at that point, it was actually about, again, working with the psychologist and working on what I needed to be happy at school and mm. some like compromises. And because obviously in year 10, you've got this big thing next year of like, this is NCEA. And so what we did then was I was like, I can't decide mm. what subjects I want to do. Like I have too many interests. Um, and so what what happened was so normally year 11s would do like six subjects mm. like maths english science and then three options um, and then at my school you also still did like pe re and health um so that was like so basically the way the timetable works there were like seven, seven. different slots that you right. filled in with your six subjects and then the pe re health slot mm. Um, and I had eight subjects that I wanted to do. And I was like, well, why can't I just not do PERE in health and do an extra subject? Mm -hmm. And then also I had already part of the year 10 stuff had been, I'd switched to doing English through mm -hmm. the correspondence school because English was a subject that I found really, really difficult just because I felt like I just interpreted texts differently from right. everyone else. So I didn't want to like, um, and we didn't do texts that interested me at all or anything. So, um, sorry, it's one of the most difficult language because sometimes it has double meaning. Yeah, yeah, it exactly. Just, yeah, just me being Asian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, and you know, English is all about like, what did the author intend here? Or like, what is the meaning of this text? Which I'm actually very interested in now, but I just wasn't ready for it then. And I think also because the social environment of mm. if everyone else is reading this thing into this text and you're like, oh, I actually read this thing, then it mm. can be quite hard. So I was doing that through the correspondence school, which was really good because it meant like in year 10, I got to read The Hobbit as my book, which I was much more interested in than the book we'd been going to read in class. Um, and so I said, well, I'm already doing English through the correspondence school. Why don't I just do that in my own time? And yeah. then I have seven 
subjects that I can do at school and the way to make they were like well that's not going to work and I was like give me the timetable planning and I was like this is how it will work I'll do year 12 French instead of year 11 French and they were like are you sure and I was like I've got 100% on every single one of my French exams this year um so they were like okay we can try it I guess um and it worked really well and I think so I think the things that worked for me going into year 11 was I knew I'd got some quite major concessions or Mm. compromises from the school Um, and I knew that it was a trial so I was motivated to make it work Mm. and so because I had those things I was more able to put in the effort to tolerate some of the things that I found hard also I was now doing all subjects that interested me Um, I was being challenged because I think a lot of like I've always been very bright and so like a lot of you know like one of the important things that for my mental health is keeping my brain engaged because when whenever I'm in an environment where I'm bored I get anxious so um so like having the challenge of doing year 12 French was really important because everything else in year 11 like for me you don't learn much in year 11 like it was just a repeat of stuff we'd done in year 9 and 10 so um if I hadn't had that like and then but then in year 12 you learn like it was amazing it's like there's all this new grammar structures and stuff so it was it was a good it was good to have that challenge um so yeah and then and so because I wanted to make it work I made the decision that the day school started I was going to sleep over at my grandparents house rather than staying at home because I knew that if I stayed at home I would be more likely to have a meltdown whereas if it, I was at my grandparents house and I was kind of in an environment where I couldn't do that I'd be better able to manage it um, and um, so that really helped um, and so yeah and then and then the other thing is um, again just that aspect of being challenged like I got involved in extracurricular stuff so my school did this there was this competition called brain bee which is like a neuroscience competition um which you do it starts in year 11 you do like an online quiz and then got through that with four three four other people in my year group um and so we went to auckland for like a day for the competition and then i i won that so then i got to go then i got to go at the beginning of year 12 to the australia new zealand final which was just in auckland so that was a bit sad um so and then i won that miraculously and so then um i got to go to the international final in Florence which was really cool and I only came fifth so that was quite sad um and so I did that stuff and then that got me involved and like because I'd done that and because I I was then felt capable of like applying for this science camp that takes place at Auckland University um in, in the summer holidays before year 13 and so I mean that was a really big thing because that was staying away from home for two weeks without my parents or anything. I'd never been to school camp because that had been too hard up to that point. Um, but have you tried one? I did the science camp. I did just the science camp. Yeah, okay. yeah. I didn't. I didn't. And I went on geography field trips in year twelve and thirteen, um, but I didn't do school camps. Mm-hmm. So because the school camps happened in year eight and in year ten, yes. and they were just that was not gonna happen yeah, <laughs> um, so how are you finding out with your interests like 
how are you exploring the different interests? There are a lot of interests. Yeah. So for you, how, how did it work out? I guess it was just, I, I mean, there were all these opportunities through school that I got to, got to explore. I mean, when I was young, like I think, I think I've always kind of been interested in the same things that just kind of come and go in terms of like how interested I am in them at a particular moment or whatever. So it was very much animals when I was younger and particularly horses. Mm. Um, it's also always been dancing and particularly ballet, which is something that I've done since I was four. Um, there's always been this interest in education. Um, so I just lots of reading. Like we, we used to go to the library every Saturday morning and I'd come out with like stacks of books about animals or dance or whatever. Um, my mum had originally trained as a teacher, so I read some of her teacher <laughs> resources. But like I was, like I was always a very good reader and um, reading well above my age level. So, so I, and then obviously, you know, having the like this was still the days where everyone's just got you know you've got one family computer that's in like the computer room um, and then you're sharing and, and you're sharing and it's dial up internet so you can't be on the internet all the time but um but definitely um you know reading websites about tight like there was this website that i loved about tigers or whatever so yeah lots of lots of reading so it um, just hits you like oh i think i like tigers now yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess I, I don't know that I ever know why I'm in, just interested. Mm. Yeah, um, but it is like it has kind of always been probably those main three things, animals, dance and education. Um, and then I guess once I got the autism diagnosis, like I threw myself into re researching and reading about that. But, um, but so you were exposed before that, right? Yeah, Unless a little bit, a little bit. Like I was aware of what the word was, but I like osmosis. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I the other one was like natural disasters and like earthquakes and stuff. Um, and I think I think partly it's, like just you know the things i was interested in oh and history also mm -hmm. partly partly it's just um you know the books that i had so like i loved playing olden days and like i was interested in history because like one of the books that i had when i was really little was little house on the prairie um so like i was i loved that book so i was interested in that or um I mean, I guess I was interested in animals because I knew I liked spending time with animals. Like we had we had cats. Um, so not when we were living in Australia, we shared we had various neighbors' cats that would come to visit. But when we before we went to Australia, so when I was very little, we had a cat. Mm. And when we moved back to New Zealand, we got cats. And you know, I really. I always said that my cat was my best friend and like, you know, I was convinced that I was going to marry my cat when I grew up and stuff. So I guess, I guess that's where, and then I, I wanted more and more pets. So we had a bit of a menagerie, like we had, at one point there were three cats, two guinea pigs, a rabbit, two fish and a dog. So, um, 
obviously your parents exposed you. Yeah, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And but also like I was very interested in, you know, I took care of the the rep. Like I fed them every morning. I helped clean the cages. I like when we got my puppy Holly. Like I went to puppy training with my mum. Um, and then, you know, I guess as I got older, one of the first things that I did in terms of like becoming more independent was taking her for walks around the block on my own and things. So, um, yeah, yeah. So again, I guess my parents exposed me to them, but also like I was then very motivated to keep looking after. Them. Right. And do you think with that diagnosis, it helped you a lot with your mental state, with uh, trying to understand um, why you're feeling like this? At this yeah, moment? yeah. I mean, I think definitely, to, like, I definitely remember that the first feeling that I had when the doctor said, do you know what this is, was relief. Mm. Like, it was a relief to know that there was, because I knew that I was different. I knew that I didn't fit in. I knew that I was really struggling. Um, and so, and I'd known that for a long time. Like, I feel like for me, I was okay in Australia. So in my first two years at school, but that was partly because I, you know, had started school with this cohort that I'd known at kindy and everything. Like, it was like quite consistent. Um, but ever since we'd come back to New Zealand, yeah. I'd knowing that I struggled at school so it was it was relief mm. um and then and so then I think it also helped because then the child psychologist could work with me on like problem solving and stuff so I wasn't just anxious for no reason I was anxious because of something that was happening at school mm. or whatever. And so we could reduce that anxiety by solving the problem at school. Mm. Um, so I think I think that definitely helped. And, and it was just that having that label meant that the school was more willing to to make those changes like we yeah. like we were asking for the same things probably as we'd been asking for before we got it's the diagnosis but when you but when you've got the got the label then they're like oh okay we yes we can do that whereas um or we can't do exactly that but we can try this whereas before then i like i've read my diagnosis report or like the letter that my the pediatrician wrote to the school and it has, there's a sentence in there about, you know, in my professional judgment, I don't believe Rachel is primarily manipulative. Like, mm. so I guess there was maybe this perception, yeah, I was a bit shocked when I read that as well. Mm, that was, uh, yeah, I guess I, there was maybe this perception at the school that I was just misbehaving or that yeah. I was, or that I was manipulating my parents or that I was being naughty for the purpose of being naughty or that I just needed better discipline or whatever. Um, and so I think having having a doctor say no, like, mm. I mean, I don't know why anyone would ever think any child is just manipulative. Like, like of course no one would do that. Like, mm. kids aren't evil little creatures. Like, if mm. they're the the behaviour is telling you something about what they need. But I, apparently, if that word is in the diagnosis report, then there was that perception. So I think I think just the label helped to get like the changes in the environment that I needed to do well. Mm. Um, 
yeah and then i think i think you know as i've got older and obviously i've still like continued to struggle with anxiety and also depression um but it's been helpful to have that label to to be able to understand what works for mental health in autistic people as opposed Mm -hmm. to in neurotypical people because it does come back to that thing of like you know maybe cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't work as well like i think there's some research that shows that it's not as effective in autistic people as it is in neurotypical people and like that's always been my experience sorry i might have just bumped the microphone Mm -hmm. um um that's always been my experience that people have been like you know in cbt it's like well let's reframe those thoughts like that bad thing's not going to happen and i'm like i know that it's not going to happen like i know that the thought is not reasonable i still feel anxious so this is not helping so it just even in terms of being able to to read about experiences or like things that have worked for other people like me and it often does come back to that like Mm. changing the environment or solve the problem thing um because often the anxiety is a reasonable response to an overwhelming Mm. environment rather than just being something random that yeah and there are a lot of uh, strategies that work and didn't work. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of it's always a balancing act. I think um, I've been, um, you know, just in the past couple of years, I've learned about this thing called autistic burnout, which is like burnout, like you would get from work or whatever. But mm. it's something that autistic people get from the from masking, from camouflaging. That's different from anxiety, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, so it's it's very new. Well, apparently autistic people have been talking about it online for like right. 20 years. But um, there's, I think, the first research paper on it got published in like 2019 or 2020 or something. Um, and the, the research paper, they were like trying to define it. And they did that by reading all these message boards. Um, but um, I think it's, yeah so it's i guess it's it's i think the way they say it presents is you get like extreme exhaustion increase in autistic traits and a loss of things that you could previously get uh like a loss of skills that you could previously do and i think that's been and then like obviously like anxiety can accompany that and depression can accompany that but i think i think the thing is that autistic burnout is saying like the cause is the pressure of like trying to fit in and not being free to be yourself and not being able to do the things that you need to do like stem or whatever or you know trying to always navigate like complex social relationships at work Mm. that that takes a lot of cognitive effort and so you get exhausted and then you get anxious and depressed um so um i mean that's been really helpful for me in thinking about because i've like i've had since year seven basically Mm. these cyclical periods of like year seven was bad and then year eight and ten were okay and then year eight and nine were okay and then year 10 was bad and then like 11 12 and 13 were okay and then first year at university was awful and then second year was okay and then third year was awful and then i came back to wellington because i'd been to university in auckland and so then like at a couple of good years there and then like the pandemic hit and that was awful and then things have got better and it's just kind of this this cycle um and it's and so knowing 
that that is probably what's happening, I think is really helpful in terms of being able to think, well, I first got that generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis when I was seven, mm. and then I got it again when I was in year 10, and then first year at uni. And so just knowing that it's probably always going to be a thing that you have to manage. be aware of and manage mm -hmm. means that you can, like that is why like I do, and it's it's always a juggling act and it's always a balancing act and it doesn't always work very well and it takes constant, but like that is why it is really important that I do the dancing because I know I need to get like good physical activity into my day to manage the anxiety. Mm. Um, that's why it's really important that for example, that I have a couple of different jobs because if I spend too much time around the same people, I, they just it gets really frustrating for me. Right. People annoy me, mm. so um, so um, it's it's better to have like a couple of different jobs where I can interact with different groups of people rather than spending like a That's full work week one, with the yeah. same people. Um, you know, it's good to have like my altogether autism job where I can work from home. Um, mm. Like I've never survived in an office. That's just that's just a no. But then also to have like to Papa where I am mm. interacting with people, but it's like it's like quite structured. Like mm. so, you know, at to Papa there's like a certain place you have to be at a certain mm. time, and there's certain things you have to do. So there's not. Um, so that structure is really helpful. So yeah, it's just, it is a, it's a balancing act and it's mm. like, it's kind of like, I know, I know the things that work and that I need. And then it's just like trying to fit them all in, right. in, in a way that works and that like gets like the right balance mm. of those different things. And also, you know, being able to do the things that I want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Do you have autistic friends as well, or? Yeah, I um, have, so um, definitely neurodivergent friends. Um, I um, found a lot of them in my dance course. <laughs> so, don't know, don't know what that says about the dance world. Yeah. But um, I think for me, like I'm not the sort of person who, like I, like to do structured activities together so like my friends are the people i see at dance rehearsal or right. whatever but i'm not the sort of person that's like let's go to the movies or let's go get a coffee or like that just mm. i've just never like i need quite a lot of alone time like honestly like like there's parts of me that's like the ideal life would be locked down forever like everyone's state like i get that obviously that's not going to happen mm. but um and i had a lot of anxiety during lockdown about lockdown finishing like the uncertainty of it was really anxiety provoking but actually being able to stay at home all the time have the interactions you needed on zoom but stay in your own house on your own it was great mm. i loved that aspect of it yes. um so i always say kind of like like i guess i'm trying to you know um you know have a have more lockdown in my life um, um or like like because i now live about an hour out of the city like i do have to come in some days but 
I'm trying to have like two or three days a week where I just stay at home and don't do anything. Like that's really important as well. So yeah. Yeah. Going back to that burnout, do you think if in the ideal world, I know it's not perfect, but if everyone is so accepting and so understanding about whoever the person mm. is, regardless of the mm. condition and stuff, do you think burnout would still exist? Well, I guess in theory, no, because it's it's meant to be caused by the pressure of like masking and trying to fit in. I guess it would depend like how much of that acceptance comes with like actual accommodations and things like mm. you know not having to work full time and stuff because it's because it's it's the pr pressure of fitting in but also like managing all the other stuff and if everyone's perfectly accepting but you still have to hold down a full da full time job and have like the executive function skills to do that and like manage your home life and mm. stuff then it probably would still be overwhelming so i guess it's it's not it's not necessarily acceptance of people being like we accept you, but acceptance in terms of like structuring society in a way that means people can do activities or participate in society or live their life in a way that works for them. And that, that might not mean that might, you know, not everyone can work full time. And so that means like, like having the support in, in place for people that can't work full time or you know someone might not be up to work at all but maybe they can mm. have a really good contribution as a volunteer but then like obviously you need to still be able to afford to feed yourself and your family and and pay your rent and stuff so yeah i think it's it's not just acceptance it's actually it what does right. acceptance what does an accepting like society mm. look like right right and then going back to your interest uh, dance course mm. talk to me about it yeah, so I um I mean I I got interested in it. So I'd done three years at university. Um, I I mean I basically like I was ducks of my school. Like I had scholarships to university. Like that was the only place I was going when I finished school. Um, Someone invited you to a dance maybe. Um, so no. So I I'd been at university and I had you know i'd got nearly to the end of a conjoint degree and just stopped because it was too hard being mm. at university i had a scholarship for three years and the conjoint degree would have taken four years and i got to the end of the third year and was like i'm not doing this anymore like mm. there's no they're not paying me to be here anymore so um there's nothing keeping me in auckland um and so i came home and i got back involved with like my dance school that I'd, and dancing in Auckland had been like the thing that I had needed to keep doing to stay healthy and when I came back to Wellington I got back involved with dancing and so I guess that just kind of underscored for me how important it was in right. my life like I I knew when I was at school that I really enjoyed dance and that it was really important to me but I think I thought that I could just kind of keep doing it as like a hobby mm. um but kind of being at university and I saw how much I needed it um right. and so that was when I started doing some research and found this course in Wellington and I was like well that might be a good idea because then like if I've a, I get to just dance all day for three years. Um, and also if I've got um, some qualifications in dance, then that you know means it can continue to be a part of my life in, as more than just a hobby. Um, so that was why I 
auditioned for that course and got in. Mm. Um, and yeah, and it was really good. Like it was, I think, I mean, I actually think that I wouldn't have been ready for it right out of school. Like a, a, any sort of performance qualification like that, it requires a lot of like, like you have to put a lot of yourself yes, into yeah. it, mm. um, more so than maybe an academic qualification does. So I, um, so I think you know I I think I was I was definitely again older than everyone else on the course, but it was the right place for me at the right time, and I learned and grew so much as a person, and I like had friends, um, and even just that thing of like seeing the same person every day, people every day, and so you make friends with them because you're seeing them every day, whereas like at university, could go days without talking to anyone because you're not in like classes where you're talking to the same people <laughs> every day. Like you might see people once a week um, in a tutorial for an hour, but you don't really know people. And again, I think also just because it's like a polytech, not a university, they were a bit more flexible yeah. than the uni like smaller class sizes. So you know your teachers. They were a bit more able to adapt things for me when I needed them changed a bit. So yeah. Have you experienced dancing on stage? Or yeah. yeah. How was it? Let so, me like anxiety. Uh... Uh, I don't. I've never had stage fright. I um. You know, people think like I even remember like um, when I was at university, I was doing a German course, and we had to do a group work project, and so I had to get disability services involved and be like, actually, group work not great for her. And they were like, oh, but you talk fine in class. And it's like, no, that's not like communication challenges, but like in the group, not like talking in class, like it's a different thing. But I think, yeah, I've just never, I've just never had stage fright. I I mean, it's like, it is like you're playing a character, like you're, you're being a, yeah. So no. And I mean, I guess because I've danced since I was four, like in mm. dance schools, you, you do a show at the end right. of the year or whatever. So you get lots of exposure to that. It certainly helped. I mean, I growing up, I would not wear my glasses on stage because they, they will reflect the lights. But I couldn't do contact lenses for ages because mm. I could not touch my eyes. And so I just would basically dance on the stage. I couldn't see it anything so I didn't get stage fright because I couldn't see the audience's face so I couldn't see how they were reacting so that probably helped um, you didn't get bumped into no, like... well I could see I could see like well enough not to not to bump into anyone but okay. I couldn't um, I'm, I'm reasonably like I definitely everything was a blur but because you've rehearsed and you know where things are at least you're it, safe. yeah it's yeah. fine but then when when I got kind of started doing this full-time dance course, that's when I really had to work on getting contacts and it took like two years. But um, <laughs> so I think the only time, the only time I've really felt stage fright was when, so our final project at my dance course, you do this thing called a body of work, which is like a 15 minute performance that you've choreographed. And I did it about being autistic. Mm -hmm. And so because that was very personal, it wasn't so much, stage fright it was anxiety about putting like something about yourself on stage um so that was that was hard and i think i think even though i did have contact lenses i think i chose to do it mm. to perform it without my contact lenses because that was just 
easier. But apart from that, like when I'm dancing, you know, when we dance at the basketball, there's like, you know, thousands of people in the audience or whatever. And I'm obviously wearing my contact lenses for that because I want to be able to watch what's happening in the game. And that's fine. Like, it's fun. Um, you know, you just, it is like putting a character on or being a different person. Like the, the stuff I do now, you know, dancing at events or dancing at the basketball, like people will come up to you and like want to talk to you. But again, it's like you're playing that character of like the basketball cheerleader or whatever. Mm. So you're interacting with the people as that person. Um, and then you go home and you're yourself and that's like a different a different thing. But it um, Does it give you burnouts like during the uh, time? I think I mean definitely when I get home from the games, like I have to do quite a lot to unwind. But um like I'll always like I mean, A, partly just because you've got like lots of hairspray and makeup and stuff on, so it takes a while to get that all off. But I always like have like something that I'm going to watch and I have mm. like, I like make myself hot chocolate and stuff. Um, I think, I mean, I think the the thing about is that normally when you're dancing, like, like things are often happening in the evening or whatever, so you can just go home and go straight to bed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and particularly with like in a basketball, like it's very noisy. Like there's lots of people talking and shouting and there's whistles and there's the shoes squeaking on the floor. So I think sometimes that's a bit much, but it's okay in the moment because I'm enjoying being there. And then it's just like afterwards, you know, getting into bed and going to sleep. <laughs> I guess it's always just that classic, like you don't look autistic and because I guess people have like still this perception of autism that it's like, you know, little white boys, um, like lining up trains and stuff. And I think, um, I guess just that idea, you know, like masking, like some autistic people are very good at like pretending they're not autistic and like fitting in and stuff, but that comes at a cost. Um, and I think for me, like, I think the more you get to know me, the more autistic I probably do look. Mm. But um, yeah, I guess, so I guess I guess it's just that misconception about like the variety of what a spectrum mm. actually is, and that everyone is individual, and what you've seen in the media isn't necessarily an accurate portrayal mm. of what um, autism looks like in in reality, um, and that yeah people people might you know be able to not stim for a while in public but like they might look and i think i think that was the thing at school once i got to school in year seven or in year 10 or whatever i was normally fine at school and so the teacher would be like but she's fine at school but then massive meltdowns at home um and that's very common yeah. um i think yeah. is that you know, and I think maybe particularly in girls that you'll look okay at school, you'll look fine at school. Um, and I think that's also partly because, you know, other girls maybe take you a bit under their wings sometimes. Oh. They like, you know, like I definitely had girls at school who would like push me gently into the right place to stand or like be like, no, don't do that right now. Like help me get along. Because they're aware, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're, um, 
like they didn't know like they were just being friendly and helpful mm. they didn't know that I was autistic or anything um and so so I think it's that thing of like you can look fine at school and at home it'd be very different because all that anxiety and like energy that's gone into coping that day at school gets released at home because home is a safe place to do that whereas school is not a safe place to do that mm. um so yeah i guess that was that would be the other big misconception wow now i understand home is a safe place school is not so yeah. hold it off yeah 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 exactly okay. and maybe not even consciously like that's probably like a you know that's a subconscious like it's not like I was going to school and thinking right when I get home I can release all this pent-up anxiety mm. like it just happens because because you're kind of aware enough that yeah you're like I guess kind of like a survival instinct like it's you're able to manage it at school but that mm. is I mean, I guess it's like even like now, like as an adult, like if I feel like I'm going to have a meltdown, I can do things to delay it so that I get home, but it's going to happen. Right. Like, like for me, you cannot stop a meltdown from happening. Like you can, you know, I know that like I can let, you know, if I jog around the netball court 10 times or whatever, I'll, I'll be okay for a while. Mm but it's going to happen when I get home um but it's just being able to like have enough control that you can wait to get home mm. till that happens um yeah so if you're having a meltdown what do you usually do I learned from uh, I forgot the training autism 101 somewhere yeah. uh, for a child if mm. the child is having a meltdown, you can't do anything about yeah. it. You, you just have to wait for the child to stop. Mm. Is that the same when yeah. you're adult? Yeah, I kind of just have to wait for it to stop. Um, for me, it will... So, like, as I said, I can sometimes feel it coming and I can, like... If I do something really physical, then that can release... Because it's, like, pent-up energy. So you can release a bit of the energy that way. But it probably will eventually happen. And, yeah, for me, it's just you just have to let it happen and like some things will probably get thrown around the room um and um but then it's more like it is like like for me like now as an adult the actual like explosive part of the meltdown mm. does not last that long and i think as a child it tended to last longer because my parents or people around me would be trying to make me do something mm -hmm. while I was in that mm -hmm. stage. Whereas now as an adult, it can happen quite quickly and then it's just more the like aftercare. Like it's like the actual meltdown itself probably does not take that long unless it gets prolonged by people like trying to make you do yeah. something in that Calm moment you, yeah. or yeah trying to help or like that makes it worse whereas now as an adult like that happens quite quickly and then I just need like some time to be really calm and you know like I had a meltdown at work 
a couple of couple of weeks ago, like at work, I was at home because I was working from home, but I had a meltdown and I was able to get on and do a presentation within like an hour of that happening. Um, but that's only because I could just like have the meltdown and have a bit of space to recover from it before I had to get on and do that presentation. Whereas if it had been like, you have to do this presentation right now, like you have to calm down, like that would have made it worse. So um, yeah, I think, I think, and I mean, it's so, it is then that like afterwards bit that lasts longer and sometimes it's like it'll be like even like the next day it's like you've got a bit of a hangover from the meltdown like you're Mm. still quite tired or whatever but um yeah it's probably like I think definitely as an adult the explosion Mm. is quite quick Quick. and yeah unless someone tries to force you to do something in that moment then it will be over quite quickly right now I understand Mm. okay but meltdown Mm. Uh, talk to me about what you're doing altogether autism. Yeah, so um, altogether autism is like an information service for um, autistic people and Fano and um, professionals and everyone. So um, I have been um, involved since 2020. So um, I was an advisor for them and an autistic advisor. So one of the things that we do is we get these information requests, whereas where someone will come to us and, you know, it might be an autistic person or it might be family or it might be a professional with a question. And when those are complex, um, they go to our research team um, and then they look at like the published research, but they also go out to the advisory group, which is like, autistic people, whānau and um, professionals. So, and then they like put together like a personalized information pack, which is like, you know, in answer to your question, this is what the published research says, you know, this is what our professionals say in their professional opinion. This is what our advi- our autistic and whānau advisors say, like based on their experiences. So you're getting like three kind of really rich sources of information. So um, I did that for three years. And then, you know, as part of being an advisor, also got to be involved in like a couple of, we did a couple of workshops for parents um, and things. um, And we wrote these guides for the Tertiary Education Commission, commissioned altogether autism to do some research on autistic students' experiences of tertiary education, and then write some guides for um, teaching staff at tertiary institute so I was involved in that so like got involved in other projects and then at the beginning of this year um, a new role opened up which is mainly as the live chat agent so um, one of the ways that people can come to us with requests for information is through the live chat function on the website um, so I answer that um, and then I just kind of I guess the rest of it is kind of continuing to do what I was doing before as an advisor anyway like um, doing presentations and doing getting involved in research projects and whatever other things you know come up um but yeah i guess because i'm now like permanent part-time get to be involved in more presentations um when you say presentation that's training as well yeah so so um altogether autism has a whole like um learning arm which is like workshops and that's technically like a separate team to me but I've been involved in some presentations where it's made sense for me to be the person to do it. Like I've um, 
recently did some for the Wellington Regional Council. Um, and that made sense just because I'm in Wellington, whereas most of the team is based in Hamilton. So like it made sense for me to be the person that did those presentations. What's the, what's the difference of Altogether Autism with Kia Roja? Oh, so it's, it's it's a bit confusing. So your way, Kiaroha, is oh, yeah, your like, way. Yeah, so it's it's the uh, Kiaroha does not mean your way. It's like the full name is your way, Kiaroha. Right. Um, people, yeah, it's confusing. People get confused. But um, your way, Kiaroha, is like a kind of pan disability organization. So they do lots of different things. They um, are the needs assessment service coordination um, people for a couple of different, so the NASC. Um, altogether autism is not part of that. So altogether autism is part of Your Way Kia Roha. Right. So, no so Your Way Kia Roha does lots of different things. Um, they also have like, we I guess, also have like mobility centres where you can mm. purchase and hire mobility equipment and um, hearing therapy and stuff and the NASC. Um, service, but then altogether autism is part, is like under your Wake Aroha, um, under that umbrella, um, and kind of uh, the learning and information side of your Wake Aroha. Um, so, so your Wake Aroha does training about, you know, disability in general, but then also has this altogether autism specific, autism specific, and actually. Altogether Autism is also run in partnership with Parent to Parent as well. So the research team is Parent to Parent's research team. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, so, so Your Way Kia evolved from when Life Unlimited and Accessibility came together, merged. Um, and so it used to be Altogether Autism started as a partnership between Life Unlimited and Parent to Parent to provide this autism information service. Um, and so then when Your Way Kia kind of emerged as the new organization, like we still sit under that umbrella, but then still work in very close partnership with Parent to Parent. Yeah, and if I will be asking for information about mm. autism, mm. that is open for everyone, yeah, right? Yeah, everyone. It doesn't need to be, uh, you, you only need to be an autistic person. Yeah. To, anyone, anyone yeah. can um, can come. So yeah, there's the live chat. There's also like a contact form on the website. There's a phone number. Um, so, you know, you can get in touch however works easiest. Um, and then, so there is that like information service. And sometimes it's something that we can answer really easily, like, mm. you know, people People will be like, how do I get a diagnosis? Or is there a counselor in this region who specializes in autism? And that we can normally answer just straight away. But if it's more complicated, then it goes off to the research team to create that like personalized pack for you. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's also like, we have lots of articles on our website. So you can just search that to see if there's anything of yeah. interest. Um, and we publish a journal once a year. Um, so you can sign up to receive that or all the old copies are on the on the website um yeah so yeah no anyone anyone can um ask a question mm. and do you give uh, support in terms of uh, what support is available for fano or yeah so it's so it's, it's like because if sorry to cut you mm. because in terms of support it's Every, everywhere. Right? Yeah. It's it's like it's not like a one one yeah, stop shop. Exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so um, yeah. We can we 
it's an information service about autism and autism in New Zealand. So we do our best to obviously um, answer any questions that people have. Um, and I think that's why having um, having that advisory group, mm. which includes autistic people and Fano, is really important because, yeah. like, they're the people on the ground who might, you know, if someone says, "I'm in Hamilton and this is what I'm looking for," we might have someone in Hamilton who's like on the ground and can say, "Oh, this would be really good." So, um, it gives that ability to like tap into people's local knowledge mm. and things. Um, we get some quite tricky questions, like, you know, some questions there is no good answer to. But yeah, we can we can definitely, like it's not just for autistic people, it's for mm. anyone who has a question about autism. Right, right. Do you have any traits, abilities, or that you think is amazing, but others think it's odd? I... <laughs> you don't have to answer if you don't. No, have I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I... Any habit, maybe? Yeah, no, like I've just got, like I've got like really good attention to detail and like like I'm great at proofreading, um, but that's not that odd. Um, mm. I think I, well, yeah, I guess, I guess just like that attention to detail and memory. Like I, we were at dance rehearsal last week and I was like, oh, the, the last time we did this dance last year, like these were what the formations were. And everyone was like, how do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I don't know, I just do. Like, like, so I think, I think like, like when I was doing my advanced two ballet exam and we had like the music on the CD and I, I was like the center so, because in a ballet class, you've got like exercises mm. at the bar and exercises at the center. I was like, the center starts on track 14 and just like knew that mm. immediately. So I think, yeah, just that, but I don't know. I feel like it, I don't maybe know that the things that I do are odd because I don't spend enough time with other people to realize that they're odd. But um, yeah, I think I've always, I've yeah, always had that very good memory and always like quite mm. a quirky sense of humor and stuff. Um, so, and just ability to like, to like see relationships with between like different things that people might not think are, think are related. Like I was at a meeting for some work for the Ministry of Education the other day and we were trying to come up with a sentence that like, talked about all these different elements and people were throwing all these like saying like well it's important that we mention this and this and this and I was able to like synthesize that into a sentence which really worked so yeah. I think yeah just that and I've always been like at meetings like when you need a person to like be the scribe and like take notes of like the key points I've always been very good at just like summarizing mm. into the key points like I've had people say wow you're so good at that so yeah Okay, so what is autism in the eyes of Rachel? I don't know. It's like it's like I mean, for me, probably autistic is like the main label in terms of how I see myself and how I define myself. Like it's been the word that's helped me to understand the way that I relate to and am in the world. Mm. Um, you know. Um, like I think, like when I was younger, it was like. Oh, there must have been some mix up at the hospital, like, and I was born two years later than everyone thinks I was or something, because like I didn't fit in with my same age peers. Like age was not a good label for, you know, when you're a kid, when you're a kid and you're like, well, I am now nine or whatever, mm. and it's a big thing. It's never a big thing for me. Like 
I stopped celebrating my birthday because I didn't want to grow up. Um, but um, yeah, so for me, probably autism is like the key part of who I am and my identity and, you know, definitely helps me understand the things that I struggle with, but also the things that I'm good at. Mm. Yeah. Okay, amazing. Any final message? Uh, no, I mean, I guess just from with like my altogether autism hat on, um, that people should definitely feel free to reach out at any time with any questions that they've got and have a look around the website because we've got um, other other things on there as well. You know, like we do we do um, regular bi autistics for autistic Zoom hui, which is a good opportunity for autistic adults to um, get a chance to meet other autistic adults and stuff. So there's yeah, there's lots of stuff on the website, and obviously we're always happy to answer questions. So. Um, or to like come in and do a workshop mm. or a training or whatever. So yeah, have a look at the website. Um, yeah, but I don't, with my personal hat on, I don't think I have anything else to all say. Right. <laughs> That's all right, no pressure. All right, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you, I appreciate it.